0: So again, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, I want to continue the exploration of the theme of deepening our practice uh, during the pandemic, you might say during the time, during a time of crisis, of course, there are multiple multiple aspects of crisis that we have right now. And this is continuing a theme that I looked at uh, three times in uh, in July, I think, and uh, I think late later in June. And it's really pointing to the way that we can use this time. Many of us have conditions which can be helpful to actually deepen our practice during a challenging time. That for some of us there may be actually more time that we have. We may have eliminated, uh, for for many of us, uh, the commute function. There may be more time, we have more time for practice. We may be also having questions raised, as many of us have been experiencing, you know, what is it that I'm called to do right now? For some, it may be because of wanting to respond to one or more of the different forms of crisis uh, in the the pandemic or the crisis related to the climate or the crisis related to Uh, racial injustice or economic injustice or the crisis of democracy a lot a lot happening now right and it's very uh, can be a time to deepen our practice and again I have a a broad sense of practice and in, in fact in the first talk I looked into what deepening practice might mean in three broad areas which really broadly give us that sense of what the areas of practice are. We looked at deepening practice in terms of one's formal practice. One's formal meditation could be deepening concentration or working with a particular teaching, possibly having more regular practice, doing more practice and so forth. The second area was looking at one's more quote unquote informal practice, which may have to do with bringing more awareness to the flow of daily life um, in various ways, to uh, having more awareness, especially connected with mindfulness of the body during cooking, cleaning up, doing various activities, taking walks, and so forth. And then the third area had to do with bringing our sense of practice into our work, our service, our being in the world, our activism. And uh, that sort of gives this broad sense of what, of what practice can mean. And then in the second talk, I looked specifically at a few ways that especially help us to deepen practice. I focused on mindfulness of the body, uh, working with uh, reactivity, the ways that the mind becomes reactive as a very powerful way to work both in formal practice and in daily life that can really deepen. If we take, uh, as a wake-up call, times that I become reactive, judgmental, anxious, fearful, whatever, that can, if we follow those experiences, can be a powerful way uh, to deepen. We also looked at the practice of pausing, again, pausing during the day and setting intentions. And then in the third talk, which was three weeks ago, and I think as most of you know, all of these are recorded and are on the website called uh, Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D. If you look under that website, dharmaseed.org, and then look under teachers, and then under my name, you can find all of these talks. And I think what I usually do is I give fairly full summaries of what's covered. So you can also know pretty well what you'd be listening to. So then uh, in the third talk, today is the fourth. Third talk, we particularly took up further the importance of intention. Again, I would say these, the intention is something important informal practice, in uh, the flow of daily life practice, and also in our work, our activism, and so forth. And so we look particularly at working with intentions and more detailed ways of doing that. And then uh, also looked at the theme of how do we connect our formal practice with our more informal practice. And Uh, Today, I want to take all this further and particularly focus on the foundations of skillful speech, skillful communication, what we sometimes call wise speech or right speech. One of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and a key way of bringing our practice into Uh, Our daily life, our relations with others, our work, our service, our activism. It's also an area of practice which has been relatively underdeveloped. Again, in many ways that Buddhist practice has developed, particularly among those who don't have uh, Buddhist practice as their uh, practice from their family of origin, there's been a focus on meditation. And I think bringing an emphasis into, into speech can, is a powerful way to deepen practice, because all of a sudden we have—we may have many hours that could be called practice, especially if we think of electronic communication as a form of speech, and so. How many of you complain about finding, having a hard time finding a half an hour for your meditation? Anyone complain about that? Okay. You take speech practice as a regular practice. You Many of us have five or ten hours a day. Anyone want to do it? Okay. You have five or ten hours a day to uh, really see as practice. And again, we can remember that Uh, In the original teachings of the Buddha uh, from 2,600 years ago, the teachings of the Noble Eightfold Path named eight different factors of development. And wise speech or skillful speech was one of the eight. And what's the hallmark of these eight factors is that they're all related to each other. So skillful speech is related to wisdom, is related to mindfulness, is related to other ways of being ethical and it's a wonderful practice that can help us with the deepening of our practice in areas of our life where things are faster moving and they involve other people which is a lot of our lives you know i think about that you know if there just weren't other people would things be simpler? I don't know. (laughs) I think of that in that regard. Some of you know uh, uh, the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist. I remember one of his phrases, which was kind of a a dreary phrase, but he had a phrase uh, in French, l'enfer c'est les autres, which means, usually translated as, hell is other people stark right i mean you know i my sense personal sense of being an existentialist was short-lived but partly for phrases like that but in any case there were there's uh, of course there's more insight than that but at that but it, it points to the sense of that when we bring in other people things become more complex because we have whatever two sets of um wants, desires, thoughts, views, and so forth and becomes more complex. So we get into that with uh, speech. So it's a very, can be a very uh, challenging area. There's a, a New Yorker cartoon, which I like a lot, which shows, uh, which I, I, I often cite, which shows a woman sitting on a couch talking to a, uh, what looks like a detective with a, a notepad behind the couch is a police officer. And then also behind the couch uh, is what looks like a body. There are two legs with the feet sticking straight up. And what the woman says to the uh, detective is, he misspoke, I misheard, shots rang out. Is that familiar? <laughs> Things can happen very quickly with with unskillful speech. So, I like to think of speech practice, and here uh, I share a lot with my colleague, Orrin J. Sofer. We've been teaching retreats and other forms of uh, teaching uh, on speech practice for over 10 years. And he's just come out with a wonderful book um, called Say What You Mean, which is very good with speech practice. yeah, you have it right there. And so um, I like to think, and this, this corresponds with a lot of the way Oren thinks about it, to think of three core foundations for wise speech. One of them is following the ethical guidelines for speech actually given by the historical Buddha. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. And those guidelines are are stated very simply to be truthful, to be helpful, to come out of a good heart, even when we're saying difficult things, and to speak at the right time, to speak appropriately. So being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a good heart, and uh, speaking appropriately, particularly at the right time. And we have to have in our skillful speech all four of those together just having one of them doesn't work right we can have we can have a truthful speech that comes out of a wish to hurt we sometimes call that dumping and so anyway these guidelines i'll talk more about them next week are wonderful area of training we could work with those guidelines one guideline a week or work with all of them for a week a month um, put them on your refrigerator, um, remember the guidelines before conversations and so forth. That's one foundation really. That's really aligning our intentions with speech that is connected to others through the heart and uses wisdom and mindfulness. So that's one foundation. A second foundation is particularly connected with mindfulness and being present. And this is the capacity to, in the moment of speaking and listening, to actually be present, to not be on automatic. This is not easy, right? You can practice it right now. Can you have some awareness of your body as you're also listening to me? It's way easier as a listener. It's more difficult as a speaker. So I'm gonna intend to do that practice, continue to do that practice as I speak. Can I be aware of my body? Can I be present as I speak? So my speaking and my teaching is not so much coming out in the exclusively cognitive space. Not easy, right? In my experience, that's taken a lot of years of training. But being present, especially present to the body, is a whole second foundational area of, of uh, speech practice. And the more we can be present and not be on automatic, the more I think we're authentic in our speech, we have more freedom, we're aware if reactivity is coming through, rather than just automatically in our speech reacting. So being present, being mindful at the same time as we speak is both difficult and very, very rich and powerful. It's something that takes, uh, that takes training and it can be awkward at first. You can practice that now, again, just being maybe present, being aware of your hands and your feet as you listen, having a general awareness in your body. So again, I think I'll say more about that next time. But I wanted especially today to talk about what I regard as a third foundation, which is especially about the, uh, really an extension of the heartfelt connective dimension of speech. And this is related to having our speech and communication come out of empathy, come out of a sense of empathic, connection. So I want to speak for the rest of the time I'll be speaking about empathy and we'll do we'll do two practices. Um, After I've given an overview of empathy we'll do two practices together that will bring out empathy, ways of practicing empathy that you could actually uh, take home then we'll have some a chance to talk together. So first, uh, uh, a brief definition of empathy. Empathy is the uh, innate capacity. It really relates to innate capacity for human beings to tune in receptively to someone else's experience, particularly at the level of the emotions and also the level of meaning what's meaningful for someone else, what's important for someone else. And again, we'll do some exercises just in a little while that can give, give us a, a practical sense of that. And there also are, there's also a somatic uh, dimension of, of, of empathy. The word empathy is actually a pretty new word. It's just a little over 100 years old and was developed actually by psychologists following the German psychologists uh, who had laboratories at the end of the 19th century, I think particularly Wilhelm Wundt, and they developed the notion of of, uh, empathy as uh, trying to actually develop a word that wasn't there in the ordinary language. And so it's a fairly, fairly new word. It the usual sense of empathy is that we're empathic towards others. We can also, I think, be empathic towards ourselves and also towards uh, other other beings. We can have empathy in that way. Empathy is somewhat different from compassion. Uh, first of all, uh, I think both of them have, uh, they're innate. And I'll say a little bit more about that in terms of the uh, neuroscience and the brain. But empathy is more receptive. We can be receptive of our own experiences and other people's experience, particularly emotions and what's meaningful. And this would include positive experiences, negative experiences. It's a tuning in. It's a receptivity. Uh, connected with the limbic system, particularly of the brain. Compassion, on the other hand, there's some overlap, but compassion is particularly about the tuning in to negative or painful or difficult experiences. So it's different from empathy in that it's focused more on what's difficult, and there's some overlap. And then uh, compassion is both receptive and active. So there's an active dimension of wanting to help and actually helping to address what's painful. So there's a difference between empathy and compassion. And empathy is innate, it's ordinarily, it's ordinarily there in our functioning. And there's been research in the neurosciences in the last 20 years and they find that there are three main kinds of empathy each located in a different part of the brain. And they relate to what I mentioned in terms of the two uh, areas that I'm gonna focus on. There's a kind of empathy, which is the tuning into the emotional life of another. That's a particular part of the brain. There's a tuning into what's meaningful or what is uh, important, that's more cognitive. There's a tuning into the cognitive dimension of another that's uh, also a kind of empathy that's r- uh, rooted in a distinct part of the brain. And then there's also a, a, a somatic or bodily-based dimension of empathy uh, in which actually, we, when someone is moving, some part of our brain actually reflects that, tunes in. This is related to what are called the mirror neurons. And so there's actually when when I would see someone walking, I would have something in my brain would actually be mirroring that walking. very interesting. you know if I go like this, part of your brain has an image of someone going like this beneath consciousness, obviously, but happening so these These are three uh, dimensions of of empathy and also important to say that uh, empathy can be misused. Empathy is a natural innate capacity, but uh, we we know that uh, that innate capacity can be misused, or I can use my tuning into another and being aware of the other person's emotions. And I can use that in a manipulative way. And so probably, uh, you know, uh, a psychopath typically has empathic capacities, which it uses for negative purposes. I would say that a number of politicians also may take the empathic understanding and use it to manipulate people. Right? Is that, do we know, we. We don't have to look very far to find examples of that, right? So does that make some sense? So empathy is innate, but it it can be misused. That's why I like to distinguish between the innate capacity of empathy and empathy as a deliberate intentional practice with the aim of understanding and connecting. I think empathy generally goes in that direction. But because uh, empathy can be misused, I find the need to talk about empathy not simply as a given, but as a deliberate practice that we, in which we cultivate it further. I think that's an also important point because for many of us, empathy gets blocked. You know, that we know that um, empathy as we were growing up, may have surfaced and may have been blocked at a pretty young age. Um, I wanna ask you and invite you to use the, uh, the chat function right now. Uh, and tell me what are some, maybe just in two or three, four words, what can block empathy? What blocks empathy? Why aren't we all naturally empathic and manifesting empathy all the time as an aspect of skillful speech? So you can read them out, Christina.
1: Fear, rage, trauma, anger, fear, jealousy, criticism, fear, selfishness, trauma, heartbreak, jealousy, poverty, fear, low, low self-esteem, Fear of rejection, distrust, bullying, fear, pain. Yeah. Uh, some type of experiences, couldn't read that, have to fix people, social training, divisions.
0: Yeah, thank you. I didn't think we, could, we could go on. That could be the focus the whole time. So there are all sorts of ways that empathy gets blocked, and often from a pretty young age. You know, maybe we've seen that happening in children. You know, that we can see how empathy gets blocked. Um, You know, it can be blocked, as many people say, when we are fearful, when we're angry, when we're judgmental. Even if we have pretty well-developed empathy, we can have our empathy blocked by those qualities. Uh, Empathy can be uh, blocked by difficult experiences that we've had in life developmentally by trauma, by uh, what psychologists call uh, a lack of adequate attachment with the parents. You know, this can really block empathy. You know, I think many, you know, uh, those, for example, who may have uh, a lot of narcissism may have their empathy blocked from a very, very young age because uh, the parenting and the connection just wasn't there. You know, uh, Many psychologists believe that this is true of our current president in the United States, that there is a lack of empathy because of uh, major developmental uh, problems. You know, we can also have our empathy uh, blocked Interpersonally, when we feel judged, when there is reactivity, uh, getting criticism, as people were mentioning. And then people started also to name uh, aspects of social conditioning. Very, very powerful uh, way that empathy can can be blocked. You know, if we think of some of our different systems that can uh, block empathy, uh, gender is a very big one. They've done studies and... It's very clear from studies of empathy that women generally have more empathy than men. And the researchers aren't quite sure why that's the case. Obviously, social conditioning plays a big role, but some researchers aren't prepared to say that that's 100% of the story. Some want to say that there may be something genetic from generation and generations of women having the primary role of being caregivers. And so there might be something that we would call almost uh, gets encoded in the genes. But it is the case uh, when people have done research that women show more empathy than men. And probably that's very much linked with the fact that uh, the vast majority of psychotherapists are women. You know, the majority of nurses are, are women. And certainly as a man, I know that I was not trained to be emotionally aware either of myself or others. I was trained to be a very good problem solver, which is valuable, very, very important. Uh, But uh, I was not trained to be able to be uh, vulnerable or to know emotions, uh, you know, at the particular time when I grew up. I think some of that has changed quite a bit, you know, but there So there's a lot, we can see a lot of aspects of uh, whether there's empathy or not or what, we can see a lot of aspects of empathy get blocked by uh, gender conditioning, right? And we can also see how um, a lot, even most of our crises, we can see how we're, uh, that empathy or lack of empathy, empathy being blocked plays a role A lot of people think that one reason that we haven't really collectively uh, uh, in the United States, for example, dealt with climate disruption is because the major effects of climate disruption are with other people than people in the United States. They're mostly with people who have nothing to do with the causes, right? They're in what we call the third world, right? Those are where the dramatic powerful effects of climate change, and that's changing some, you know. As I look out and see ash a little bit outside, it's changing some, but still, and we can see something like that similar in terms of uh, racism, that uh, uh, one of the characteristics of there being in-groups and out-groups in society or hierarchies in society, any society, is that there's generally, empathy is generally confined to those within one's own group, right? And uh, a lot of the barriers are actually barriers to um, actually feeling empathy. A lot of the barriers in society make empathy possible. In that sense, when we shut down empathy, in a way we take out a part of our hearts, right? I'll just read something. This is from uh, Ralph Ellison. And from uh, a book from about, I don't know, over 50 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, called Invisible Man. Ralph Ellison, African-American author, he said, I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie Uh, ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings themselves were figments of their imagination, indeed everything and anything except for me. A powerful quotation. You can see how a lot of our social systems make us empathic towards some people and not towards others. Very true in relation to foreign policy. I I think of, um, you know, I think of uh, after 9-11, the New York Times had long articles about every person that they could find a trace of who died in the uh, attacks on 9-11. And they were very moving and one could feel empathy towards the people who died. But there was no such thing in relationship then to who died in Afghanistan, right? You don't, uh, one doesn't give names and faces to the enemies, so to speak. So, again, we can see all the different things that that uh, block that block empathy. So, in that way, we could say that uh, empathy is one of the most important qualities to develop and really crucial for our world. You know, a lot of people have said that. Um, Empathy may be one of the most important qualities to develop at this time. You know, there there was a very uh, prescient book, a book way ahead of its time by Jeremy Rifkin, uh, published in 2009 called the, uh, The Empathetic Civilization. He said the next large advance in civilization would occur by the widespread development of empathic understanding towards others. He said that that kind of empathy, listen to this, this is 2009, that kind of empathy will allow people to solve more complex issues such as climate change and pandemics. 2009. And focus more on the quality of life. He said that Basically developing the heart, developing the empathic heart is key to actually resolving large-scale systemic issues you know of, of the kind that I named also very crucial for uh, interpersonal relations and skillful speech so I'll be actually teaching practices that we can work with in just in uh, our everyday lives and then try to bring them into larger world. Uh, I remember a quotation from uh, a local San Francisco Chronicle uh, journalist named Otis Taylor who writes a column for the San Francisco Chronicle. In the fall during the election of 2016 he said, I argue that that the lack of empathy is the most pressing issue in America and is more compelling than national security threats bad trade deals, unpaid taxes and deleted emails. We can think of the many ways that there wasn't really so much empathy in the election. I think of Hillary Clinton talking about the basket of deplorables. And there are many ways, and I would say, in which people who are more quote unquote progressive uh, might often be very non-empathic towards political opponents, and towards, uh, particularly, I would say, white working class people, maybe people who voted for the current president. So very crucial, very crucial quality, and I think very significant. I was thinking of uh, a long time ago, about 20 years ago, I was part of a retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory. We were trying to bring attention to nuclear issues. We had an interfaith retreat. And uh, as part of the retreat, we were, were, um, they let us stay on the grounds, and we had a, uh, we rented an RV to give us shade, and we meditated and talked. People would come up to us, and we were permitted to have lunch and mingle with the employees at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And we did that, and we talked uh, with them, and it's interesting, some of the people in our group got into conflictual conversations, and some people really emphasized empathy. It was something I experienced, really listening and hearing what's there for people. Why are they part of building nuclear weapons? And it was very, very important and very interesting. And I think a lot of people who talk about the way to end political polarization talk about the value and importance of empathy. Very, very crucial. Uh, a local person named Kat Zavis talks about prophetic empathy, where we both, we combine having empathy while also taking a stand on what seems wrong. In that way, we may be distinguishing between the view or policy that is harmful and the person and not discarding the person. You know, I was thinking of. Uh, I think it was one of the ways I was raised. I, I heard this story from uh, from my mom. She said that once uh, she was criticizing something my brother did when he was five years old, and she told him, "I love you, but what you, but but but, uh, but I don't like what you did. What you did was hurtful towards this person." So she distinguished between the person and the action. And he, uh, she, she said he spoke back to her and said, don't talk to me like a psychologist, just spank me like the other parents do. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's empathy, right? We, just, we find ways to connect even if we disagree. Not easy, right? So I like to think of empathy again as a practice that we deliberately do. So here are two practices And this is where uh, we want to work with uh, one of the handouts um, that, well, let me me back up and say, um, what are some of the practices that cultivate empathy? One is simply getting to know people across some of the social boundaries. When we know people from different ethnic groups, different ages, different economic backgrounds, and develop friendships, something changes. When empathy can be there, that's a major way of actually dealing with social issues. One thing I heard from, I think, from uh, John A. Powell, who works with the Othering and Belonging uh, Program at the University of California, Berkeley, he said one of the hopeful signs is that um, about 40% of white people have in their extended families now, people of color. And that starts changing things, right? People get to know people, but also they're willing to take a stand if they see injustice related to uh, race or ethnicity. So that's one area. One, another way to do that is through reading, seeing films and so forth. Okay, another uh, practice that we, that's experiential practice is one that we'll do right now. And this is where we try to listen to two areas of experience. And some of you, I think, have done this. We try to tune in to emotions and what matters for the person. I'm gonna do this with you now where we can, uh, I'm gonna speak for two minutes and ask you to be empathic towards me. And you're going to do that by tuning into two dimensions of my experience, tuning in what are my emotions, number one, and then what matters to me, what's important to me. And I'm linking this with the handout that I gave. Maybe we can put it up uh, just for a moment on the screen. Can we do that,
1: Christina, easily? Not if I'm going to lose you, but there is a way... You can lose you me just
0: for um, 30 seconds or so. Um,
1: you want one of the documents because both are not going to fit? Yeah, let's set it's... up
0: the documents I gave you, the first one on uh, feelings. This is uh, a model from nonviolent communication. We can put it up when you're ready.
1: Okay. This... Of course, that's the one that I didn't put up. Hold on. <laughs>
0: And this is this is uh, just naming various emotions. You know, it could be fear, anxiety. It groups them into different classes. And again, when you're ready, you can put it up, Christina. Okay. And and we can uh, partly extend our emotional intelligence. So there, you know. So there. This is something that you can work with in the uh, you know from the links. You know, how are we doing with this?
1: We're getting there, Don, we're getting there <laughs> okay. feelings. <sighs> okay.
0: If it's, if it's not possible, we can just drop it. or if it's going to take three or four minutes better to drop it.:
1: Okay, it's going to take me a couple of minutes, so go ahead.
0: Okay. So basically a range of emotions, some of you have it on the handout could be fear, anxiety, sadness, joy, gladness, et cetera. And then secondly, there is a distinction between emotions and needs. So emotions are differentiated from our thoughts or our narratives. So an emotion is is, uh, different from saying, I feel rejected. That's not strictly speaking an emotion. Emotion would be something that's more body-based, like fear, anxiety, and so forth. And then In nonviolent communication, there's also a listing of what are called needs. This could be, um, so I actually have the handout here. This could be the need for autonomy or freedom or connection or meaning, honesty, authenticity, peace, uh, physical nurturance, rest, shelter, and so forth. And on the handout that there's a link for, you can have a more extensive listing. Very crucial is needs are distinguished from strategies. I like to use the phrase more what matters or values or what's important. So freedom may be a a value or um, a sense of connection may be a value. So here are the emotions, some of them. Good. And, and let's go to the needs, if you can do that. And the needs are distinguished from strategies, because needs are seen as always valuable and important, but strategies can be skillful or unskillful. So I may have a need for peace and be an alcoholic and find try to find my peace in ways that are not skillful. I may have a need for connection and be uh, sexually abusive, right? I may have a need for um, security as a country and dominate other countries, okay? So that's probably enough for now. We can go back to just showing me. So we're going to do an exercise. I'm going to talk for two minutes about something just very ordinary. Matter of fact, And as I do so, I want you to listen for two or three emotions that you hear during the course of the two minutes and two or three, uh, two or three needs or sense of what matters to me. You can use the handout if you have that or not. Okay, ready? So set your intentions to be empathic towards Donald. Ready? Okay. so I'm going to talk about my garden. One of the gifts of the pandemic is I have more time for gardening. Right now, for the first time, I'm growing cantaloupe. And they're getting big. They're almost like, you know, they're getting to be th- three or four inches in diameter. So I'm, I'm really excited about my cantaloupe. But there's also, it's wonderful, my lunch will be about half made up of veggies from my garden. Kale and... Uh, Kale, and squash, and green beans, just wonderful. Now, growing a garden means it's also vulnerable to some of my animal friends nearby. So I've been also growing sunflower plants, and about half of them have been eaten and not survived to getting big. I have just two out of the six I originally planted that are getting bigger. So, some mornings I come up and find my sunflower plants cut in half. I don't know. Difficult moments. Okay. Cut. Okay. So, use the chat function. What were some of the, what were some of the emotions? Just we'll, we'll distinguish between emotions and what matters or needs. What were some of the emotions? And Christina will read maybe five or six or seven of them. And, and we want to name emotions.
1: Excitement, happiness, excitement, pride, joy, appreciation, proud, disappointment, anticipation, wonder, tickled, anticipation, gratitude, feeling excited, pleasure, pride, joy, sadness, loss. Okay,
0: wonderful. Um, so, I feel empathically met. <laughs> Thank you, and it's it's really a, a very nice feeling. Um, one, one, a psychologist, Carl Rogers went, said, when we feel, when we feel heard, listened to and met, he said, using a, a technical term from psychology, he said, it feels damn good. Right? It's actually many of us, if we look deeply, what we might most want, or one of the things certainly up there is to feel heard understood, met, listened to, understood. And so, one of the interesting things about the empathy practice is that when you did, when you were empathic towards me, some of the things I recognized, but some things I said, oh, I didn't realize that one. That's interesting. Appreciative or wonder, you know, that just, uh, I mean, I can see that that's accurate. By the way, people were 100% accurate in their empathy. Yay. Thank you. And, um, but, uh, I discovered things about myself that I didn't know. Okay. Let's see in terms of needs or what matters. You can use the chat function. What matters to me?
1: Purpose engagement, food, creative learning growth food sustainability hope beauty connection to nature sense of accomplishment protection self responsibility pleasure work with hands keep gardening keeping keep garden well self sufficiency well, connection okay. with nature
0: okay, this, this is good okay I'm, i've had my empathic nourishment that will last a long time
1: and, co-creation but,
0: productive caring So a lot of these are great because I didn't realize they were there. Some of them I might know, but some of the, the empathy was bringing out different aspects of myself I didn't even know. So I was going to do a second practice, but I think because of time, I'll save that for next time, the one with the sheet, and just say this is a practice that you can do at home with people close to you You can also do it, you can watch a soap opera on television and practice empathy. (laughs) You can practice empathy in hearing the news. And do it as a deliberate practice, just in the same way that you did it with me. You can do as a practice with a family member. You can ask, could we just do a practice just like what I did? Tell me a little bit about your day, and I'm going to practice empathy. Empathy. And then I'll tell you a little bit about my day, and you practice empathy. It can be a practice like that, but as we do something as simple as what we just did, empathy will develop. And we'll also see some of what stands in the way of empathy, what, what blocks empathy. So this is a pillar of wise speech practice, I think, very, very crucial. And I think crucial, as several people mentioned, crucial for um, healthy culture and meeting, uh, meeting the crises. So let me open it up now if there are any observations from that exercise, any uh, questions, any, anywhere you want to go with uh, the understanding of empathy and the practice of it as one of the, what I'm calling one of the three foundations of wise speech.
1: Someone okay. earlier did send me a comment, but we've done so much in chat that it's lost. Okay. Um, if they would like to resend it, I'm happy to read it.
0: could do it again, so you could you could do the raise hand function or the or uh, do it by chat. I prefer that if you can do the raise hand function, we get to
1: talk together and I will read um observation. I felt happy joy watching your joy about your garden
0: <laughs> Very good. That's a kind of self self empathy really crucial, right. Particularly, let's pose some, you know, there can be moments in which empathy is not available from others. Maybe we have a hard time. It's possible to do a kind of self empathy. And you can do it very much in the same way we did it. Not always easy, but it's possible. Anyone want to ask a question, make a comment? You can do it by the raised hand function under participants or, um, yeah. Or by writing something in the chat function. One way to actually work with that practice that you know we do when we do retreats or trainings is we actually—I I brought the uh, handout with me. We actually bring this handout sometimes, and you can. Use it if you if it helps to get as it were more uh, um, uh, differentiation in your emotions, or be clear about the needs. And again, these are uh, these are on the web. If you look under uh, well, I know I got these from Bay NVC, and if you go to their website, and they would have uh, the sheets that you could just print out or use on both uh, feelings. I like to use the word emotions because feelings is so ambiguous in English. But uh, I would say both for what in NBC are called feelings and needs. Okay, here's one. Jennifer, would you like to
1: unmute? Yeah. Okay, I think I did. You're good. Okay. Hi,
0: Donald. Hi, Jennifer. (laughs)
1: Hi there. My question is uh, we focused quite a bit on the development of uh, empathy um, So uh, when, when empathy is lacking, you know how to develop it. but my question is what advice or suggestions or thoughts do you have for those of us who tend to be so empathic that we're often overwhelmed um, by life, you know the people and yeah. the environments around us um, for one for when there's almost too much empathy it feels.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, for, for some people, there's, um, can be a lot of empathy, sometimes naturally there, sometimes developed, and can be uh, something which can be, um, feel like too much, right? And, you know, some, peop- some people, this is learned, uh, a psychologist named Elaine Aaron. Wrote a book about 25 years ago called The Highly Sensitive Person, and in that book she said that about 20% of the population are naturally sensitive more than others, even to the point of having some of the uh, on you know on the uh, some of I forget exactly what this was, but some of their sense mechanisms are closer to the surface of the skin. Some of it's quite physiological about being uh, sensitive. And I find this when I've sometimes done work in, um, with medical people. I've also uh, talked with them and uh, found out that that's a big issue in medical settings. That in medical settings, people often feel like too much empathy. So a few ways to work with that. One would be, in in some settings, it could be simply have less input, right? Simply have less input, create boundaries where that's possible, you know, and be conscious of when one's taking on too much. Sometimes that's not a choice. Sometimes it is a choice. Research at Stanford showed that there's actually a distinction between empathy and compassion, and their claim is that if we tune in more to compassion, there is not burnout with compassion or overwhelm with compassion, whereas there is with empathy. That's interesting, right? So that's something to to explore, to see whether it's actually possible to um, have it be more compassion, which is a little more sustainable. So I think mostly just to be aware of how to set boundaries, use the mindfulness to be aware when it feels like too much, you know, and one can some, you know, in a conversation maybe say, you know, I'm feeling like it'd be good to take a break now, something like that, to be skillful and empathic towards oneself. So I, does that begin to get at it, Jennifer?
1: Yeah, that helps. I'll explore more of that um, compassion, empathy, distinction, because that's interesting.
0: It is interesting, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions? Jamie, would you like to speak? Sure.
1: Um, thank you so much for, for your teaching this morning. This has been this has been wonderful. Um, you know, if I think about the exercise, you made it easy for us because you were very expressive about how you're feeling. Right. Expression point.
0: and, you know, your, your, your appearance, your face, and your words. What are your
1: suggestions um, about practicing empathy with people who don't make it easy? either are not expressive about how they feel or might not even be in touch with how they're feeling.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can be empathic even when people are not themselves in touch with what they're feeling uh, or don't express much, it's harder. And there can be, when people are more expressive, the, the, the empathy is a little more direct and doesn't involve too much guesswork or interpretation. It will involve some of that when we have less information you know and even in a lot of cases when we have when we are empathic in terms of what matters for someone that may involve some interpretation we may not know directly right and so I think just uh, basically do your best of course we can uh, um, some people we may get into the emotions by asking them what's important for you. So some dialogue where we touch base, maybe people are more cognitively fluent, but less emotionally fluent. Well, we might enter through the cognitive as a way to get to the emotional. Could be vice versa for some people. Right? And I think it's okay to make guesses. It's so important to have the intention to be empathic because it means we basically want to connect and understand and that goes so far. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe thank next you. week I'll do this and be less expressive. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: I think we have a few more. Victoria, would you like to speak? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I wanted to do this practice the other day and I didn't have anybody on um, to do it with but i was outside and there were these crows hovering they hover every day so i decided to try to tune in to the crow or the raven that was on the beam above me and um i found it pretty useful i don't know what i would say in terms i don't know what if i'm allowed to really assign them the needs and the emotions, but, um, and I felt a little bit, a little bit silly for a moment, but still I was tuning in. So,
0: yeah, no, I, th- I think that's both great and, um, actually very significant, <laughs> wonderful silliness, <laughs> yeah. um, very significant to go in that direction. You know, in most indigenous cultures actually had much more developed relationships with other beings, right? I know when I've entered into uh, First Nations communities in Canada, you know, they have the whole... People are actually placed in clans, which are named after the animals. And there, there are ways that I think there are connections. So to go in that direction with animals... Uh, a friend of mine, Stephanie Caza, once wrote a book called Conversations with Trees. And I think to to just to... Tune in in that way. Of course, it's involving interspecies empathy. Uh, but it's uh, wonderful to explore that, see what see what occurs.
1: Yeah, Just, uh, thank you. Thank you. Time for maybe have-
0: one or two more.
1: Okay. Sherry, would you like to speak? Yes, thanks. Hi, Donald. Good to see you again. Hi. Um my questions came um some of us in a group are struggling with empathy as it relates to supporting friends who are deeply grieving, either Ill, deep illness or yeah, yeah. passage of family members. And we're finding out that many just don't even want to talk because it's, they have to keep repeating the experience and their loss and their yeah, sorrow. Yeah. When, when people express, you know, any kind of support. And I'm wondering a, how to, sense that better when that is the case and be how to show support without nonverbal support or in some way support the family without the person without putting them into a um, discomfort.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful questions. How many can relate to that question? (laughs) Quite a few people. And I think, I think my sense is that you've almost partly answered it in your questions um, that, you know, what occurs to me is, um, maybe just initially in regard to your first question, just to ask people, you know, uh, and and maybe come out of empathy towards yourself, coming out of your own need or what's important saying, you know, uh, maybe if this is true, you know, I, I don't know really how you're doing or how it's been. And I'm, I'm really interested in hearing, but I also want to respect uh, the fact that you may be doing this for a lot of people and I can wait or something like that, you know, to mm-hmm. to give the person the choice, but, but not to refrain from saying what's important for you. And uh, that would be one thing. And then I think, you know, then if, if people don't want to talk and how do you show support... Um, Again, it may be to, just to, again, for some people you can ask directly, you know, I'd like to be supportive. Is there something helpful? Could I cook a, a meal for you or could I do errands for you or could I help you in some way? Maybe just to to ask in some way or just to, just to uh, be there or maybe to consciously be there, uh, make a plan to be there some weeks later when Things are less uh, intense and most people will have gone away. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think, uh, I think we're a little bit over time now. Did we have a, a bunch of questions still there, Christina?
1: Donald, there's uh, one that asks how to tell when we are projecting.
0: How to tell when we are projecting. And for people... Who don't use the word projection so much. This would mean, in this context, it would mean that we're imagining something to be the case with someone uh, and we're sort of uh, having it come a little bit more out of our needs or our minds than actually picking up something empathically. That's one way to say it. Um, So we want to, I think we want to, this could be a whole topic for another talk, but I think we want to notice the extent to which we do what would be called projection in in different situations and know whether we have tendencies to do that. You know, that if I'm anxious about something, that I'll tend to project onto another person that the other person is anxious. So we want to study whether we tend to do that and know whether that's uh, a possibility. Um, With people who are close to us, we can just experiment and ask people what they're experiencing and check out whether it's projection or not. Hopefully we will have enough friends and you can tell them, I'm really exploring my own tendencies to project. Would you be willing to give me feedback? (laughs) Right? And some people will do that and that is invaluable because we we're not going to. We can learn a certain amount of projection by just looking at our own minds, but tremendous if we can have someone else help us in that. So that could be really, really helpful. Usually, projection is because we haven't dealt adequately with what we're projecting. You know, uh, psychologist Carl Jung said that which we don't know in ourselves, we tend to project out into the world onto others, where we encounter it as demonic. I could unpack that for another hour, but that's uh, it's basically saying that a lot of our projection is with our unfinished stuff or our material. So if we have a sense of what that is about and can look look at it and work with it, that's a good way to deal with projection. And again, we it's a big topic. We could look at it again next time. So I'm going to, we're, we're over time now, so I'm going to, bring us to a close. We'll continue some with empathy next time. I'll bring in some other dimensions of wise speech. And the invitation is to practice this form of empathy, the one we did here, in a simple way. Practice this with others. If you have a a friend or family member where you can actually do it with each other and then rotate. And it's a very quick exercise. The one we did with me takes two minutes, right? It's a very, very quick exercise. What would it be like if the whole...
1: I think we all are supposed to practice having empathy for Donald probably had a frozen, had some frozen technology.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
1: dharmaseed.org slash donate.